If you were given the task of compiling a bunch of data and writing down one of the most incredible stories the world had ever heard, how would you begin it? How would you begin it? Uh, perhaps your first line, the first sentence of your story would be uh, something rather simple and innocuous. Um, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Or maybe it would be something a little more exciting, more attention-grabbing. Uh, the cold passed reluctantly from the earth, and the retiring fogs revealed an army stretched out on the hills, resting. That's the Red Badge of Courage, by the way, by Stephen Crane. Or perhaps you would address your audience directly, and you would state to them the reason for your editorial effort. Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. These are, of course, the, the opening words of Luke in his first volume of his two-part historical account of the most incredible story the world has ever heard, which we now have preserved for us as Luke Acts. It's a shame that the early church, when they were compiling the New Testament, decided to take the Gospel of John and wedge it in between Luke Acts, because Luke and Acts really are two volumes of one book, of one story that we are, have before us today. Today we're beginning a lengthy study of the second of those volumes uh, in Luke's book, which we are calling Kingdom Come, and I'll talk more about that today. The title is drawn from, of course, Luke's uh, uh, emphasis. He's, he has an, an emphasis, and especially his gospel, on the kingdom of God. And so let's take a few minutes before we begin and uh, familiarize ourselves with this, with this writer, with this author, uh, from the earliest tradition, uh, the very earliest uh, church, the early church, unanimously attested uh, to the authorship of this book to Luke, who, according to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, was the beloved traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke is the only Gentile, uh, which is a non-Jew, the only Gentile, possibly he was even Roman, to write in a, a portion of the New Testament. In Colossians 4, actually, Paul excludes him from among the circumcision, among the Jews, so we know that, of course, he was a Gentile. And what may surprise you is that Luke wrote more of the New Testament by verse count than any other author, including the Apostle Paul. And I know that because I painstakingly counted the amount of verses that he wrote. Uh, Luke was a physician by trade. We have several physicians here today. Uh, the language that's used in both volumes of his book are at the very least, is at the very least consistent with that of a physician who would have been someone who would have, was vigorously trained as uh, physicians, of course, are today. And his language proves that Luke was uh, very highly rhetorically skilled. He was well-researched. He was highly knowledgeable. Uh, his, his work is accurate history on the same level as any other extra-biblical history in this time period. You often see these debates between college students and apologetics uh, teachers kind of debating, you know, oh, the Bible, you know, that's just, who knows, it's fairy tale. 
I mean, the Bible was written by these writers as history when it was written 2,000 years ago. And we don't have any other trouble with any other historical accounts, but for some reason the Bible gets a bad rap. But his work, Luke saw his work, his, his collection as accurate data. Uh, one Greco-Roman historian at Oxford wrote this about Luke's writing. He says this, The historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, the details are precise and correct. One walks the streets and marketplaces, the theaters and assemblies of first century Ephesus or Thessalonica, Corinth or Philippi with the author of Acts. As documents, these narratives belong to the same historical series as the records of provincial and imperial trials in epigraphical and literary sources of the first and early second centuries A.D., The confirmation of historicity, and that's two words pushed into one, historical authenticity. The confirmation of historicity is overwhelming, and any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have taken it, long taken it, for granted. So there's just a little little background on our author, Dr. Luke the historian. But what's the pastoral reason for our Uh, embarking on a study of this size in this book. Why are we going to be here for the next year plus or whatever it is? Well, to answer this question, I'd like to read with you just the first three verses of Luke's, uh, of the book of Acts, which we'll focus on today. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We'll study this today. This is what the Lord says through the pen of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So let's use our time today and study these three verses. We'll place these under two headings if you're taking notes just for ease for you. The first is the continuation of the work, and the second is the preparation of the workers. The continuation of the work and the preparation of the workers. So point number one, the continuation of the work. Now from the outset, we notice that Luke is writing to a man, first writing, to a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, who is this man? Well, we actually don't really know. But there are some clues in Luke Acts that kind of tip us off and help us to make an educated guess. His name means loved by God. If you take the word theos and philia, that means God and love. You push those together, you have Theophilus. Uh, It was a common name in this period of history, especially, obviously, in Greek. It's a Greek name. Greece is a Greek name. And in his gospel, Luke ascribes to Theophilus the title, Most Excellent. Now, is he complimenting Theophilus, or is there something more going on there? Well, this is probably more than merely a sign of respect. Luke later gives the same titles in the Greek to the governors Felix and Festus in chapters 23 and 26, respectively. And so based on this, scholars tell me that Theophilus was was likely a man of high standing. 
He was probably a respected member of the uh, intelligent middle class in Rome, possibly even a Roman official who had observed early Christianity sort of taking shape. And so Luke was writing to him to clear up what he had heard. He was very likely a wealthy man. Uh, He was possibly even a patron of Luke, someone who, you know, financially supports a work. And since a document like what Luke wrote would have cost something like $4,000 per copy in today's currency uh, to publish, having a patron like Theophilus would have been a very helpful uh, person to have in his corner. So Theophilus is the clear recipient of this record, uh, but he could also help Luke circulate it. Now, we've already seen that Luke's work is notable for its detail of both Jewish and Gentile uh, customs. In the introduction to his gospel, he said that he did the work of a data collector. I'll refer you to Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 again. He says, "...inasmuch as many has undertaken to compile a narrative from eyewitnesses of the things that have been accomplished among us," verse 3, "...it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you." Now, scholars estimate the writing of the book of Luke-Acts to be somewhere around 65 to 80 A.D., somewhere in that period. So Luke was not a firsthand witness to the ministry of Jesus, but he was a firsthand interviewer of firsthand witnesses of Jesus' ministry. And of course, Luke at some point joined up with the Apostle Paul, Specifically in Acts 16, Luke switches to first-person storytelling. For example, he starts saying things like, we made the voyage, and we remained in the city, and we sat down. And Acts remains in the first person through the end of the book. Now, what does all of this mean? This means that while Paul was in a, a prisoner in Caesarea, in 57 to 59 AD, we're going to study that in chapters 21 to 27, probably somewhere in the year 2027, but just kidding. Uh, He was a prisoner there in Caesarea for those years, for that two-year period. Luke, being with him, was a free man in Palestine, a free man only 20 to 25 years after the events of the Gospels, after Jesus died and rose again. And very likely, Luke had visited Jerusalem several times prior to this. So what does that mean? It means Luke, the historian, studied Jewish history closely. He studied their customs and their feasts and their holidays. He visited the very same places that Jesus walked. He knew the topography of Nazareth. He knew the history of Capernaum. He knew the technical details of the temple in Jerusalem. All of these details, by the way, are attested to in his gospel. He would have met Peter. He would have met John. He possibly even met the now elderly Mary, Jesus' own mother. Each of these able to give firsthand eyewitness testimony of the things that Acts 1, 1 and 2 says, Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. Luke was utterly convinced of the reliability of the eyewitness accounts that he received. Friends, when you read the Bible, are you equally convinced? 
As we study this book, we are going to read things that much of the world says, oh, that's just a fairy tale. That's made up stuff. And yet Luke, Dr. Luke, the historian, the diplomat, he was convinced that what he was writing was accurate. And he says that in the headings of both of his accounts. Now, this, this phrase, Jesus began to do and to teach in Acts 1.1, is critical for our understanding for the rest of the book. So let's talk about that for a minute. You see, Luke and Acts are two sides of the same coin. If Luke is anything, he is, yes, a historian, yes, a diplomat, but he is an evangelist. Luke wrote this account so that this Theophilus, this loved-by-God man, this, whoever this man was, this, this diplomat, and anyone else who read this work, he wrote this so that they would know with certainty that salvation is found in no other name but Jesus Christ. So we might say that Luke's gospel is the account of salvation accomplished, but Acts, the other side of the coin, is the account of salvation proclaimed. In Luke's gospel, salvation is bought by Jesus on the cross outside of Jerusalem, but in Acts, salvation is taught by Jesus' apostles beyond Jerusalem, all the way to the capital of the known world, to Rome. Luke's gospel is his account of Jesus' ministry from, hev- from earth, but Acts is Jesus' continuing ministry from heaven, through his church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, here's the incredible thing about reading a story like Acts, this historical account of the first century. This is a story that continues on today. It's not a finished story. Jesus Christ continues his saving work from heaven today. Why are we studying Acts? Well, friends, I believe that the Lord has Grace City Church at a crucial time in our history. Ten years ago, the Lord laid it on my heart to plant a church. Almost seven years ago, the Lord showed us and the Beans, our ministry partners, that we were to go here to Wilmington. Five years ago, next month, about 10 of us gathered together for our first public worship gathering. And since that first meeting, the Lord has graciously added to us so many more than he's taken away. We've watched him change numerous hearts and lives. We have watched him grow us and deepen us in a love for him and his gospel. But you know, I believe that he is just getting started. I believe that there are people who are alive today who are dead in their trespasses, and in their sins, who will one day find the salvation that Jesus bought and that the apostles taught. And friends, this will happen when we at Grace City discover that the gospel is both the good news about what Jesus did in history 
to rescue men and women from their sin, to, to bring them into a new life, to, to give them new lifestyles, to remove them from their sinful lifestyles and bring them to God. But oh my, it is also the active power of God to save sinners now until Jesus returns through his proclamation by us, the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Loved ones, what the modern church needs, I could say more than ever, is to remember that Jesus Christ from heaven is still saving people from their sin and changing lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I see far too much spiritual apathy in my heart. There's too much cold love in my heart toward the Lord Jesus, toward his church, and toward the dying world that's out there behind these walls. There's too much business as usual. There's too much, what are we having for dinner tonight? There's too much, what are we doing this weekend? There's too much, what are we watching tonight going on in my heart? Friends, this is why the book of Acts is so important for us at this stage in our history. I haven't asked you the question. I didn't ask you to raise your hand, but I would bet if I did, you would say with me, yeah, I guess I see a little bit of that in me too. Right now from verse 1, Luke, Luke wants us to see that Jesus' ascension was not the end of his ministry. It was just the beginning. Just the beginning. Oh, don't, don't, don't misunderstand. The purchasing work, that, that's done. Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 10, 12. Justification before God has been purchased for us forever who believe in his name, Romans 5, 1. And sanctification, the ability to deny ungodliness and worldly lust is the direct fruit of that justifying work that Jesus did for us, Titus 2, verse 12. The work is finished. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And yes, the apostles, they, they had a unique role in the history of redemption. They saw Jesus face to face. They were given unique inspiration by the Holy Spirit. And friends, we do not stand on their, in their place. We stand on their shoulders. But there is still a numberless multitude that must yet be brought in, made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, whose sin Jesus atoned for by his blood. And until that day comes, until the trumpet sounds, Jesus is still building his church through his church. And guess what, friends? We need the same Holy Spirit that the apostles had. The one mentioned, listen, 57 times in the book of Acts, we need that Holy Spirit if Jesus is going to continue his building work through his people until he returns. This is why we're studying the book of Acts. Because the work 
continues. But of course, for this, we need to be prepared. And so I'll go to my second point, the preparation of the workers. After rising from the dead, Luke tells us in verse 3 that Jesus remained with his disciples for 40 days. He didn't just rise from the dead and say, all right, guys, see you later, and ascend into heaven. He stayed with them. When I was 18 years old, I had just started college, and uh, I, I took on an internship or apprenticeship, I guess you could say, uh, at, a, at a, an optometrist's office near my house. I went to school for opticianry. Most people have no idea what that is, but um, it's the field of healthcare related to the fitting of corrective lenses or glasses or contacts. And uh, I got this job at this optical, and I remember during the first few months, 18-year-old kid, all I did was sit there and watch the master optician, that's a real title, the master optician, uh, teach me what it meant to be an optician. And he showed me how to bend frames, and he showed me how to read prescriptions in lenses, and he kept me in the back behind the bench. Why? Because when I was 18 years old and I've never touched a frame, I wasn't ready to start bending an $1,000 frame that belonged to somebody else that we would be responsible for if I broke. We needed, and I've broken many frames, by the way, after that, but I needed a master optician to show me the proper techniques, the proper way to bend, the proper way to use the tools before I could be released to serve those patients. Well, this is what we see in Luke's introduction to Acts. Before Jesus could, could let his disciples out on their own, before he was taken up and ascended into heaven, the master needed to prepare them for the work that he began. And just as, as Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and preparation for his ministry, by the Holy Spirit, verse 2 says, Jesus prepared his disciples for their ministry by speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 3. Training had to be done before they were given the energy they needed for the race. Instruction had to come before they were given the Spirit's unction. We've talked about this concept of the kingdom of God before, but this can be a subject that you hear and you're just kind of like, okay, we talk about this all the time, but I'm not really quite sure what it means, but we need to know what it means because it was a favorite subject of Luke in his gospel especially. So what exactly is the kingdom of God? I'm going to give you a simple definition and then we'll discuss it. The kingdom of God is the now invisible reign of Jesus Christ over all things made visible everywhere he is changing hearts and lives through his finished work. The kingdom of God is the now invisible reign of Jesus Christ over all things made visible everywhere he is changing hearts and lives through his finished work. Now here's Jesus, imagine. He's there 40 days teaching, speaking about the kingdom of God to the disciples. What's he talking about? What's the details? Well, we have a little bit of, little bit of clues, but you have to know to the, to the disciples, to the, to the ancient Jew, they knew what the kingdom of God was. 
They'd always recognized God as the ultimate king in Israel, and they knew that his rule reached out over the whole earth. Indeed, the whole Old Testament pointed to a visible kingdom that would break through into the world ruled by God's Messiah in the end times. But here as Jesus speaks, the world was ruled by Rome, by an emperor. The monarchy of Israel, the The theocracy had long fallen into enemy hands, and now everyone in Israel was waiting for the kingdom of of God to come, which is why next week we're going to even see that the disciples still were confused about the nature of the kingdom of God, because they're asking if Jesus is coming to restore it now. But when Jesus came, the Bible tells us in Luke 4 that he came to preach the kingdom of God. And he said in Luke chapter 11 that If he casts out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you see, even after after his ascension, even the disciples had an incomplete view of the kingdom of God. So don't feel bad if you're right in there with him. But according to Jesus, the kingdom, the kingdom was not yet a visible entity, so to speak. The kingdom was brought near in himself. And as we saw a few weeks ago in Psalm 2, he is the reigning king of this kingdom, and he has been since he was risen from the dead. The kingdom of God then, friends, is both invisible and visible, seen not in grand palaces or temples, but listen, wherever people embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The kingdom of God is seen wherever lives are transformed, wherever hearts are healed, wherever sickness ceases, wherever the spiritually dead find new life. Jewish scholar David Flusser describes the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, as he says, according to Jesus. He says, for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is not only the eschatological or end-time rule of God that has dawned already, but a divinely willed movement that spreads among people throughout the earth. That's why on your card, you can see the word movement one, movement two, movement three. This is the word, the kingdom spreading throughout the known world as we'll look at. The kingdom of heaven is not simply a matter of God's kingship, but also the domain of his rule, an expanding realm embracing ever more and more people, a realm into which one may enter and find one's inheritance, a realm where there are both great and small. You know, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus told the people in the synagogue in Nazareth that today, in their hearing, Isaiah chapter 61 had been fulfilled. This is what Isaiah 61 says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Fast forward through the cross and Jesus' resurrection, and here we get to Acts 1, 2, and 3, and Jesus is delivering instructions about the kingdom of God to the apostles that he's chosen. And next week, we're going to see what that purpose is, that they be his witnesses. But do you see? 
just as Jesus was sent by God, that word in the Greek is apostoline, that's where we get the word apostle from, to preach good news to the poor and the blind and the oppressed. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that he's going to continue his preaching ministry first through his apostles and soon through everyone else that he has called to himself. And friends, that's all of us. Don't, don't miss it. The ongoing kingdom-delivering ministry of Jesus from heaven has been taking place in the lives of his people ever since he gave his spirit to the church. Through really dark times in history, there have been sent ones proclaiming that Jesus is king and lives have been being changed because of it. Take comfort, friends. He began with a group of unlearned ragtag men, fishermen, cheats and scandalers. He made those men apostles. And then he stepped into their very bodies by his Holy Spirit and filled their mouth with his word and their lives with his spirit and, let, and literally sent them to change the world. And you know what? Because of their message beginning in Jerusalem that made its way all the way to Europe, you and I sit here today. Let me ask you this. Are you discouraged as you look at your life And as you think about this book, maybe you've read it here recently, you don't see this sort of thing happening in your life. In fact, you don't feel like anything has happened, really. And you've given up a lot to follow Jesus, and your family has turned against you for following Jesus, and your, your co-workers think you're weird because you're a follower of Jesus. And you don't see anything happening except you being an outcast. Are you discouraged this morning? My friend, if that's you, read verse 1 again. There are two stages to Jesus' ministry. The first is already done and finished, but the second is taking place even now from heaven. He is not done yet. I remember I began my first pastorate in the mountains of North Carolina, and I can remember a time when I was particularly discouraged uh, the church felt and was stagnant. I would preach every Wednesday and uh, Sunday and teach every Wednesday to a group of about 20. And from all appearances, it looked like nothing was happening. In my whole five years in the mountains, I baptized one young lady. Every week was hard labor, and there was little to show for it. Sometime in there, uh, I spoke with my best friend, on the phone, my best male friend, on the phone, Aaron Bean. Aaron, you probably don't remember this or may not remember this conversation, but I was sharing about my struggles, and he shared with me a story about Charles Spurgeon's grandfather, who was also a preacher. Spurgeon tells this story in a sermon, so I'll just quote him. This is what he says. He says, I shall never forget one day when my dear old grandfather was alive, I was to preach a sermon. There was a great crowd of people, 
and I did not arrive, for the train was delayed, and therefore the venerable man commenced to preach in my stead. He was far on in his sermon when I made an appearance at the door. Looking to me, he said, You have all come to hear my dear grandson, and therefore I will stop that you may hear him. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? My answer from the aisle was, I cannot preach the gospel better, but if I could, it would not be a better gospel. Spurgeon continued, so it is, brethren. Others may break the bread to more people, but they cannot break better bread than the gospel which you teach. For that is bread from our own Savior's hand. Get to work, each one of you, with your bread breaking. For this is Christ's way of feeding the multitude. So I did. I kept laboring on. I kept breaking bread and giving it to the people every Sunday and every Wednesday. And one Sunday, I preached a sermon. And be glad you weren't there back then because they were way longer sermons. If you think these are long, just don't... Thankfully, all those audio files are gone somehow. But I, I finished preaching, and I stepped down, and as people were filing out, a dear older man approached me that I had not talked to very much because he didn't, he didn't talk a lot, but he had recently come into our congregation, and uh, he approached me to, to say something to me. And, and he, says, he said, you know, I've been in church my whole life. I grew up in southeastern North Carolina, Faison area, I, I attended a Presbyterian church. Uh, I, I heard preaching every single Sunday. But, but since coming here, I think I finally know who Jesus is and that he paid for my sin debt. For the first time in my life, I think I can say I am a Christian. Now, Friends, that thrilled my heart, and it made me laugh because all I did was break bread. That's all I did. And it was the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, who did the work in that man. Are you discouraged? Spurgeon concludes his sermon. Let each one who has himself eaten divide his morsel with another. Today, fill someone's ear with the good news of Jesus and his love. Endeavor this day, each one of you who are Christian people, to communicate to one man, woman, or child somewhat of the spiritual meat which has made your soul glad. This is my master's way. Are you discouraged? Friends, all you can do is take out the greatest treasure that you have and let Christ do the rest. And might I add, pray. Remember what Jesus ta taught his disciples how to pray? He said, in this way, pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Why? Because it is. Even today. 
Yet, yes, he wanted them to pray for his, his visible kingdom to come, his return. But this prayer, friends, is powerful when we understand that by praying it, we are asking for God to bring his will to pass. We're asking God for, for us and those to, for whom we are praying to be brought under his lordship. Kent Hughes says, to pray your kingdom come is to pray for the bending of our wills in profound obedience to his. It is a commitment to conscientiously submit everything to his authority. Friends, that prayer, that simple prayer, your kingdom come, is a trumpet call for the winds of heaven to begin blowing on the earth. It's a call for heaven to break in in the midst of a broken situation, whatever your broken situation is, or in the lives of those to whom you are ministering. It could be sickness. It could be spiritual brokenness or lostness. It could be mental confusion or even mental sickness. It could be a lost child that they've been praying for. It could be a lost brother or sister. They could be the very lost one. But when you pray that simple prayer, when I pray that simple prayer, Lord, may your kingdom come. We're asking God to turn the heart of an unsavable human being, someone that, get this, was almost just as unsavable as you and me. And to bring them into glad submission to his rule. Are you praying that way? Are you praying that way for people who seems so unsavable to you. John Calvin, I think it was John Calvin who said, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. Holy Spirit-led prayer, friends, is our starting point in this task. Do I believe that he is already at work? Do I believe that the Spirit is already at work in my neighbor before I ever say a word to him? To my coworker that I'm terrified to share with. I haven't said a word to them about Jesus. I've talked a lot of words to my coworker, but none about nothing about Jesus. Do I believe that he's at work in that person? You think you took the job because it gave you a $10,000 pay raise. There are lost people at your job that are far more important than any pay raise you could ever get. God has put you in front of them. It's the same with your spouse, this, the child that's running from God. Lord, let your kingdom come. Bring sight to my blind love one. Friends, the time is now. Jesus is doing work from heaven in very ordinary people that have been handed bread by him to break. In closing, I'll read John Piper because he says it so much better. We need a spirit-authenticated commission on our lives from the living Christ. We need a deep mind-persuading heart-gripping verification that Jesus is alive and triumphant over all his enemies and that his cause is unstoppable. 
And we need to understand the kingdom of God and how it came and how it is now coming and how it will come. This is why we're studying the book of Acts so that the God of all hope would fill us with joy and peace in believing in Christ's finished work so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might abound in the hope that his work is continuing from heaven until he brings every last saint in. Amen.